This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to the Online Frogcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online, ended up on the United States Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison, and I've, since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the type of people I used to be. Today, we're going to talk about a topic we both receive a lot of questions from card not present merchants, account takeovers, ATOs for short. We honestly could do five episodes on this topic and, and how the fraud is impacting so many online companies. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in future episodes as well. But we wanted to give a kind of a primer about what it is, the different types of ATOs, why it's growing so rapidly, and some of the ways you can protect your company and consumers from this type of fraud. And for those of you that don't know what account takeover is, essentially it's when a fraudster is using an established account. Say you have an account with a retailer, with your email server, with online gaming, with video streaming. I'm trying so hard not to say name brands right now. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> Which is Don't why you it dare, sounds like you won't let me. I know. <laughs> but you know, think of all the companies that you have accounts with. And usually it's just username and password, email and password to get you through. And when somebody else has that information, and we'll talk about all the different areas why, they can then access that account and it wreaks havoc on merchants because it looks like a legitimate account. Prior to about five or six years ago when we started to see this creeping up. Really, merchants heavily scored brand new accounts when they were looking at fraud. It was almost always a brand new account comes in, orders something expensive, and wants overnight shipping. Well, people like Brett at the time got on to, wow, we're not looking legitimate when we do that. How do we look more legitimate? So they started to not do overnight shipping or do smaller dollar transactions and then work up to bigger transactions and then... Over the last five or so years, I'd say five or six years at the most, we've really seen them take over legitimate accounts. Because if somebody took over, you know, my Amazon account, I'm not saying anything mean about them, so I'm going to call them out. (laughs) That's my biggest rule is just not, you know, saying anything negative about any of the companies we work with or that we know, just in general. But if someone were to take over my Amazon account, they would have access to the credit cards I have on file. They would have access to 
an account that's been on file for probably like close to 10 years. And so, you know, me making a big purchase on an account that's been open for 10 years and had no chargebacks or fraud on it is going to look really legitimate. So that's really what we're talking about. It looks really different for different types of companies. And we'll go into that a little bit on this episode for sure. You know, we see it in a lot of different ways, but that's the basic premise is a fraudster's taking over an existing account to inflict harm of some kind. I mean, we're talking about payment fraud. There's also content abuse, spam, all kinds of things, but that's the basic definition. Right. <laughs> I've definitely seen a huge evolution of account takeovers in the last few years, like I said, and I have some theories and thoughts about it and I'll share those in a minute, but Brett, why do you think it's growing so much and why is it growing so fast? Oh, well, why do I think that? Well, I think to try to understand that you have to go back to where, where we kind of started the account takeovers thing as an organized team back with Shadow Crew. And back then, account takeovers were only dealing with bank accounts and credit mm. cards. That was it. That's the only thing we were interested in. It was easy enough at that point. Well, what happened was is, is banks and credit card companies, they, they understood after a few years what was going on, and they really put the hammer down on ATOs, on account takeovers. So at about the same time, we see that, that merchants and retailers, all of a sudden, they start to understand, well, you know what? A, a new account is much more likely to be fraud-related than an existing account. Well, fraudsters kind of started to understand that at the same time, too, because what was going on is, a, you know, a fraudster, he would, he would buy a credit card, someone's credit card data online, and he would use that to try to buy, you know, MacBooks or cell phones or something like that, laptops, whatever he's got. What was going on is sometimes he would get the orders through, sometimes not. But as time progressed, fewer and fewer of those orders were going through. Now, that's not to say that today a good fraudster cannot get really any item that he wants to get. But that good fraudster, in order to really be top-notch at his game, he's going to have to use different tools. And one of the tools now is this ATO. Now, why has it gotten so big? Well, you've got the EMV chips, for one thing. So you've got the chips coming in. I was at a conference last week. And uh, Julie Conroy from IT was is, was speaking. Uh, you spell I think it's Aita. Sorry, it's Aita. Sorry. Sorry, Julie, Aita. She was speaking, and she gave this stat about EMV um, and how it's defeating physical counterfeiting of credit cards. And the stat was is that it's decreased over a billion dollars is what it's done. So right. it, we definitely see a decrease in the amount in, in physical counterfeiting of credit cards, that type of fraud. Well, those guys are not going to simply stop working as fraudsters. This is this is a career for these people. They, they work in their own fraud economy. It's no longer a business. It's its own economy now. So what do they do? Well, they have to find another avenue to commit fraud. If they can't do it by physical credit cards, what do they do? Well, most people are transitioning over to CNP, card not present transactions. So when you're in card not present transactions, if you buy credit card data, you can use the credit card data almost immediately. So I can go on a darknet forum, I can buy credit card information for 6 to $20, and the price depends on the bin, the gender, the location of the victim, okay? so Okay, why gender? Is it, I mean, is it, <laughs> it's, I mean, one of them has more of a limit or less of an available balance, or I'm totally curious no, about the, that. The weird thing is that most, most information, most stolen information is male, all right? So if, if you if you buy female information, now here's where it gets interesting. So female information is less likely to be fraud related. Okay, so really? that, that on but the problem That's... is is that most fraudsters are male. 
Hmm. So if, if there's a manual verification that takes place, so if, if a fraudster is looking for female information, he should know immediately if there's a possibility of a manual verification, if, if that retailer or merchant is going to call back and try to verify order or want them to call in and verify order. So there's that. The other thing is, is that sometimes, depending on the seller of the information, you can pick an age group. Well, what is the prime age group to hit? Senior citizens. Because senior citizens, they really don't have an online presence. They're not really tech efficient or anything like that. They don't understand technology very well. And I'm not trying to, you know, put down senior citizens. I'm just saying that's just the way this, this thing works. So if you get, if you've got a, someone that's selling data, credit card data, and they can actually give you an age of the person, that data may pop up to 30 to $35 a pop at that point. Wow. Um, so what happens is, is you buy the credit card data. Now you can use that information and the information that it comes with. So for that six to $20, usually you get the person's name, you get the credit card number, the expiration date, the three digit security code, the address and the phone number. And that's going to run you, you know, six to $20. Now you can use that as a fraudster right then. All right. You can, you can go online you can order product. You can order services. You can put the payment, the card through a payment processor and try to get some money, but the money you're going to get usually 500 to a thousand dollars, usually most of the time, under $500. Okay. Now, if that fraudster has a card, say he's got a card that's the bin of 414720, which is a Chase signature card. That is the top card for fraudsters for the past, that I know of, for the past four or five years. So if he's got that card, that's for Chase signature. So it's given out to people with high credit, credit scores. It's also a rewards card. So they expect, Chase expects a large charge on that when they get the card. Is that the one that has the private jet program that we talked about? It's got that as well. Now, City has one of those. Chase has one of those as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A merchant that I've been working with has definitely seen a high number of like ten to $15,000 transactions, which is not uncommon for them, but on one of those bins. And so that's what I was referencing is I... I, I think that bin was, was like, why are they seeing these all in the same bin? <laughs> <laughs> right. And and the reason why is is that fraudsters, they collect bin lists. They they have a list of bins that they that they like and they know which which companies work better with which bins or which sections of the country work better with which bins, things like that. Which is so, so funny because I always tell merchants that they need to be more aware about bins and most merchants <laughs> have no idea. Most merchants honestly and I can hear you in your car and on your commute yelling, where do I get a list of bins? Because issuers and honestly the card brands don't want to provide public bin lists, not just for fraudsters, but because there really isn't a lot of bin data out there for merchants because they don't want merchants to be picking and choosing, you know, what bins or discriminating against bins, which ironically, the I was just reading an article before we got on this podcast that this week, the Supreme Court actually weighed in on a similar decision about that. Um, about oh, no Amex. Yeah, it's, I mean, of all the things this week, I mean, we're recording this a couple weeks before it's going to come out, but there's been a lot of uh, Supreme Court decisions made this week and that one snuck in and wasn't in any of the headlines, but um, wow. it's about Amex if anyone wants to read it. But so, I mean, it's very hard for merchants to get bin lists, but definitely check with your providers. There are a lot of fraud providers that have them. When I worked with a really large company, they had their own bin list that they were keeping. <laughs> but it is important. You can start to see trends both in your fraud, but also business intelligence for your consumers. There might be 
you know, common or also in your chargebacks too. look at what bins are winning and losing in chargebacks. And maybe there's some you just won't fight on some reason codes because, you know, you'll always lose or some that you'll always win. So, yeah, just one of the many soapboxes I'll probably get on. But it's just funny to me that fraudsters are looking at something that merchants should be, too, but honestly have a harder time getting access to. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, with fraudsters, um, fraudsters have access. They've had access for, for, for a decade since this thing started to bin directories and everything else. So Carter started with bins. They knew exactly what to look at and how to look at it and what to look for before they went out and started shopping for stolen credit card data. Uh, and, and it's it's really important. And I understand that, that, make no mistake about it, I understand that most of the cards, most of the bins of 414720 are legal, all right? But if you have a group of fraudsters that are looking specifically for that bin, that should be some sort of indicator for you. And I, I think you should really start looking at bin data as well. Well, yeah, and looking at it for, you know, your company, right? Like, Absolutely. I mean, because you may not have high fraud on that bin, but you may, or, you know, looking at what bins are we canceling? What bins are we getting chargebacks on for fraud? What, you know, all that stuff, because those are probably, you're probably dealing with the same fraudsters that like the same bins and that are coming. So that's just one more data point you can use to try to cancel it. That's it. So what I was saying is, is that, so he gets, he gets the credit card information. Now he can use it at that point for roughly $500. But if he's got a card that say it has fifteen thousand on it, why would he waste that card just for five hundred? So, so a good, what I consider a good fraudster. There are no good ones, but a, a skilled fraudster. What I consider a skilled fraudster. What he will do is, is he will try to ATO the account. So he he takes it over. He may change a phone number on it, anything else like that. That's the way it works with credit and bank. Now, for merchants, here's the thing for merchants. For merchants, what does it usually consist of? Credential stuffing things like that. So so someone will, will launch a phishing attack, say they're phishing Netflix accounts. We know, fraudsters know, that people use the exact same login and password across multiple websites. So you may not fall for someone phishing, say, your, and I'm going to say your Amazon account. So you'll, you'll see the Amazon phishing email and you'll be like, hmm, that looks like a fish to me. I don't think so. I've caught you, Mr. Fraudster, and you won't fall for it. But Say, are you, are you going to have the same level of awareness that if someone sends you an email that looks like it comes from your Hulu account? I mean, you're going to sit there and say, Hulu? Who on earth would fish a Hulu account? Well, all kinds of people would. If you're using the exact same password and login, it's valuable to a fraudster. So they get your password and login through that, through man-in-the-middle attacks, through data dumps. So, so last year we had 1,500 breaches, 2.6 billion records compromised. So that's just last year, and that's just what was reported. So there's a lot of passwords, a lot of logins at that point, uh, login information as well. So they use that. And, and a lot of that data, I'm going to tell you, a lot of that data is posted free on Pastebin and these other sites for fraudsters to just use at will. Okay, so they'll go ahead and scrape the sites themselves, see what's on there. Is your password on there? If it is, they'll post it in there and, and, and log in and try it from there. There are so many different ways you can do that. The reason why, it goes back to what I said, if a merchant understands that an older account is much more likely to be legitimate than a newer account, a fraudster understands the same thing. A fraudster knows that if he can take over an existing, and Carissa to say an existing Amazon account, a 10-year-old account, Amazon's seen nothing but good traffic on it, it's a great customer, all of a sudden someone comes in, takes over the account, say they use a proxy that's 
geolocated to where the victim is located. They may be using something like uh, anti-detect, or they may manually change the fingerprint to match, say, Carissa's fingerprint. At that point, can Amazon tell that it is someone different logging in? Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. And it's the can't that allows the criminal to, say, put a gift card on the site. So he puts a gift card on the site, charges an item, then refunds the item, commits friendly fraud, an organized friendly fraud on that. Or he changes, he updates the payment information. Or maybe the account already has the payment information included, and he just orders something. He changes the address. He changes the phone number. These little changes are enough for, so that he owns the account and can do whatever he wants to to it at that point. So, Abra, that's a lot of great information. And we'll be diving into even more of that, too. I mean, I think going back to just where, you know, why that's growing so fast and, you know, how it started and all that, at least from my perspective, I hadn't heard of account takeovers until March of 2013. And I remember that because I was organizing a large conference for e-commerce merchants and fraud. And one of the groups that I helped form was what we called the Online Gamer Safety Alliance. And yeah, so well, I didn't name it. And I just mostly was facilitating it. But the guys who are part of it have you know, given me credit for helping them kind of keep them on track, I guess, over the years. But it was all the larger gaming companies in the U.S. and some internationally, uh, mostly not gambling gaming, but strict, you know, online gaming. I know the word gaming has different meaning in Europe than it does in the U.S., (laughs) (laughs) so I had to be careful there. But, you know, everyone you can think of, from the consoles to mobile gaming to PC gaming, all that stuff. When we were getting ready to decide what topic they wanted to discuss in a session at the conference I was organizing, they said account takeover, especially one of the largest console gaming companies. And I was like, what is that? And so they explained it to me and I said, well, you know, I haven't really heard about it from anyone else. But what I've seen over the years is that online gaming, dating, all the digital goods, merchants always see fraud first. And so, you know, new fraud trends first. So I said, well, let's give it a shot. And I moderated the panel and no surprise, it was a packed room, but not because anybody else had pain points with ATO back then. It was all because it was really big companies. A few of them had never really spoken before publicly. They felt safe doing so in that environment. And so they really spoke openly about this issue and how it happened and everything else. And then over the last five or six years, I've seen it impact everyone from, you know, small outdoor retailers to, you know, email clients, obviously online dating accounts, anyone, because like you said, once they get the username and password to one account, they're going to get it everywhere else. And unfortunately the other thing, the really big factor I've seen to really kind of overlap in the increase of account takeover is what's being breached. So you mentioned, you know, that we had 1500 breaches just in the U S last year and, or that was just in the U S right. That's worldwide. Oh, okay. U S I let's see identity guard. When I, when I was working for them last year, they handled 436 for, uh, for the United States, 436 breaches. This year, they had already, I think they've already been at that amount. So this year even is going to far surpass last year's breaches. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had a really weird moment because I looked down at my phone and it's actually 4.36 p.m. right now. And that was really <laughs> strange. I know that's really... <laughs> I think I need to go buy a lottery ticket or something. <laughs> Sorry, that's off topic, but I was like, whoa, I really tripped out there for a second. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a lot of breaches. And there's also a lot that go unreported, as you know. And so, but really, if you think about it, in 2014 was the Target breach, the Home Depot breach, all the, and they were credit cards, credit card numbers. And I think what fraudsters, if I were to guess what they were thinking was, you know, after those breaches, the banks went through and many banks proactively canceled those cards. Others identified the fraud very quickly because they knew that what cards were compromised, what cards had been used at those retailers. And, you know, with a credit card, you can get it turned off really fast. And so right. what I saw happen in 2015 was a huge shift in what was being breached. So, you know, 2015 was the OPM hack, the Office of Personnel Management. That not only included rich account data like name, date of birth, social security number, mother's maiden name, addresses, all that. It also included psychological profiles and fingerprints of our military and government officials. It was pretty intense. And we've also seen a lot of health insurance companies be hacked as well as, you know, anyone that has that rich account data, the data that can be used to open, you know, cardholder accounts and everything else. We also saw, and I'm sorry to my friends at these companies, but Yahoo and Sony have username and password breaches as well as a few others. And that really impacted it too, because, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the news, at least consumers, they hear the news and they're like, oh, it was just username and password. It's not credit cards. I'm fine. But actually, uh -huh. I would argue you're worse off because you can change your credit card number very easily. It's impossible to change those, almost impossible to change your social security number, your maiden name, your mother's maiden name, or, you know, the street name of the street you grew up on. You can't change half of those. And when, in, when you can change them, they're very difficult. Also, you, so either it's accessing your bank account card or, you know, online and then username and password. I don't always remember all the accounts that have my username and password. And even if they don't have payment information attached to them, if I don't have stored card, it still has value because they're using the legacy of the account. So I think 2014 to 2015 was really when I saw a huge shift. And I talk about it a lot in conferences that I speak at of just this 10,000 foot view of fraud and changing that I've witnessed. And between every merchant now experiencing it in various ways, as well as just what's being hacked. And it's the things that can be used forever. And it's the things that can honestly be more valuable and can't be shut down right away. No, I agree. And, and here's one of the important stats. 86%. 86% of every single person on the planet uses the exact same password and login for multiple websites. 86. Wow. And that's what, that's what makes this thing so scary. Uh, so, you know, you, you see a breach where, where password and logins are, are, are compromised. Yahoo was a big one. Certainly certainly Sony and the other ones as well. But, you know, what do these things sell for? The problem is, is a lot of times they don't sell for anything. So they're paid, hmm. they're just posted somewhere. Or if they're sold, they're, they're sold in batches. Okay, I'll, right. it's not really a lookup service so much as I'll sell you a batch of these things. You know, a few thousand of them for hundred dollars <laughs> or what it whatever it may be but it, it's so there's so many out item. there that is that why it's so inexpensive and why they do it in batches and not singles Absolutely. so so you've wow. got somebody that th the problem is is you have to monetize this data all right so as a criminal you get all this data in and you have to figure out exactly how you're going to make money out of it so so you've got a group of people you work with so the first thing you do is you you and that's what's happening now is we see a lot of this credential stuffing going on that's one of the reasons that credential stuffing is, is exploding is that as criminals become more and more skilled and advanced, they're automating more and more things. So they automate 
you know, a bot out there that just starts stuffing credentials into different websites to see what fits. So I recently talked to a company out of Atlanta that deals with, they have a line of products they deal with. And they had not been breached themselves, but what was going on was, and that they had tracked it down to credential stuffing. So they didn't know exactly where the data had came from. They expect it was the target breach. But just by going by that, they were losing about $200,000 a month just on product from this thing. And they're not, I mean, they're a big company, not a huge company. But this is the danger of this kind of thing. So you, you, you have a breach, your passwords are compromised, you don't change them or you don't remember everything that the password was in to begin with. Meanwhile, you've got a guy out there or a group of guys that are sitting down, they automate a system and it just works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, stuffing that login and password into hundreds and thousands of websites to see where it fits. They get a report back on where it fits, then they look at the website, how can we make money on this, all right? Now, if you've got something as big as the, uh, say, the Yahoo breach, so you've got, a bil- say, a billion different passwords and logins, well, there's no way. I don't care what you've got automated. You're not going to go through a billion of them. Or maybe you are, are going to go through that. But at the same time, you're going to start selling those passwords and logins to whoever needs them. Or once you're through with them, once you've exhausted whatever you're doing with it, what do you do with it? Sometimes you throw it on paste bin for whoever wants it to use, and you go like that. What a considerate fraudster to share with oh, his yeah. friends. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that. That's one of the things I, I think. You know, you and I have talked about that a lot. Is hmm. the fraud community, the organized fraud community? Say one thing about them: they are all about sharing and networking amongst themselves, and that's something that we still don't really see from a lot of merchants and, and government groups and everything else. I mean, they. Damn, they, I'm they, trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you are. You're doing a great job, but you still. There's still oh, that yeah. barrier up, and that barrier may be it may be from legal. It may, it may be there may be really really good reasons that that barrier is there, but fraudsters don't have that barrier. Right. They don't have to ask permission. They're not obeying the law to begin with. <laughs> so, good point. They don't have to go through channels or anything else to talk to somebody. They just get them on Jabber or whatever and say, "Hey, how do you do this? And why don't we try to hit this site today?" And that's right. the way things work. No, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge reason why I've gone into, you know, creating conferences that get merchants together. It's why I'm about to start working on CMP 2019 already. It's going to be in San Francisco this year. So I'm very excited about that. Just a change of scenery from Orlando after the last uh, six years. But yeah, so I mean, that's why I work on that. That's why I have so many merchant only programs within that conference. Um, And that's why I've also worked on getting the CMP forums up and running or CMP chats, I think is what they're going to be called. And they're coming soon. I've been told by the end of July. Keep in mind, I've been told that a couple of times. And it's not on them, actually. Like, <laughs> actually, it's actually a good thing. The parent company of CMP is based in the UK. And so they have a lot more privacy rules to go over, especially for forums. But again, that goes back to what you said. I mean, for fraudsters, if they want to share information, they don't have to comply with GDPR oh. or any privacy <laughs> policies. We have to. I mean, I'm really thankful that this company is taking all those steps to make sure because I take this stuff so seriously. And But it'll be a great opportunity for merchants and merchants only to share information with each other and ask each other questions. And I believe it's the only merchant only forum that's out there right now that's oh, nice. focused. So I'm excited about that, but it's not, I mean, I know we're kind of taking a rabbit trail, but like it's not going to be every merchant and they're not, they're also not as freely sharing as fraudsters are. I mean, certainly not with data, but even with information, I find that they're a lot more free to answer questions in person 
in our merchant only sessions and in the fireside chats, but that's once a year at a conference. And so, you know, and that's still not every merchant. It's quite a few, not every. So, I mean, we're trying, but yeah, we have a lot more barriers, privacy policies, competitiveness, you know, worried that that's going to go out in the press, you know, that such and such company is experiencing this fraud. There's a lot of things that go into it. And there's some merchants that can't even speak at a conference that has the word fraud or risk in it because their company doesn't want to be associated with that. (laughs) I work with it all the time. I try to do workarounds, but I'm lucky that, you know, CMP Expo doesn't have the word fraud or risk in it, but I used to work for one that did. And there were a few companies that couldn't speak because they didn't want, they never wanted their brand to be synonymous or even in any way, shape or form related to fraud or risk. But I mean, as you know, and as everyone who's listening, especially that's on the merchant side knows, every company has fraud. We just need to start admitting it and not having it be so stigmatized. Absolutely. For sure. it's, it's, it's not if you're going to be hit with fraud. It's right. when you're going. When are you right. going, when are you going to be a victim is the As question. As a consumer and, and, a, to, right. and an So what company. are you going to do to, to keep from being a victim is the problem. For sure. I mean, that, that's the entire point of this podcast. So, I mean, obviously you talked about credential stuffing and some of the other stuff, but I mean, you're on the dark web pretty often, again, for informational purposes only. I know I mentioned that before. What types of account takeover tactics are you seeing right now? Like both how they're gaining entry to the accounts, like you said, you know, with credential stuffing is one way. I know there's a couple others, but also how they're utilizing the accounts once they have access. Sure. So, so gaining access Basically, it's all about most of the information is sold. So, so ninety nine percent of the people out there that are committing ATOs, account takeovers, are buying information from vendors. So that 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 may be logins, passwords. Uh, it may be what's called a fools, which would come with that type of stuff. So a fools is a complete identity profile. Usually, to do most account takeovers, you uh, it, it's a two factor type thing. So you'll you'll do the fools, and you try to. Uh, uh, take over the account as much as possible. So that way, if you have to, if I'm calling, say, customer service on Amazon or anything else like that, I need to spoof the phone number. I need to know as much information as I possibly can about the person who actually owns the account. And that doesn't matter whether it's a, I'm trying to take over a bank or a retail merchant or anything else. If I'm spoofing a call, I'm going to talk to a customer service person, and I need to convince them that I am that person. So I need to know who that person is. So spoofing calls is one way you can do it to an account takeover technical ways you can do it. So if I buy information, I live in Alabama, say I buy someone's information that lives in Denver, Colorado. So I've got their information, got their credit card, whatever. I need to make sure that my IP address, the physical computer's address, matches Denver, Colorado. So there's a there's a few ways I can do that. I can use a SOX5 proxy and spoof the geolocation of Denver, Colorado. I can use a remote desktop and do that. Actually, I can't use a mobile phone unless I'm in the area at that point. But those are two ways that you can spoof geolocation, spoof device ID using a fraud fox or anti-detector. You can do it manually. The ease of how to do that, I mean, it's as easy as Googling it. So these guys are daily, they're discussing how to do this. They're training people how to do it. If you can't find someone on a criminal forum on how to do that, you can simply go to Google and type in, how do I properly use a proxy? There are like a list of 30 different steps, browsers you should use and everything else on how to use a proxy properly, how to remain when you use a proxy, you have to remain anonymous and you have to spoof the person that you're, you're trying to steal from. So there's two factors with a proxy at all times. I have a feeling we'll probably do a much bigger deep dive on proxies soon because, oh my gosh, you know more about proxies than I've ever even thought about. 
if nothing else, your three very long comments on a, a LinkedIn post that I did this week today that you wrote would show that. But a lot of them were acronyms. I didn't even know. But I would say, too, just to add to that, like when Brett says it's easy, I did it. So I think it's kind of funny. I was getting ready to do a presentation last fall with Uber in San Francisco at a large frog conference. And Brett wanted me to see kind of how easy it was to do a proxy. And I was talking about account takeover a little bit in the presentation. And so I'm sitting in a coffee shop in Seattle, which is where I live. <laughs> and I committed account takeover, but with permission. So I said it was consensual account takeover. But I committed account takeover with Brett's login and password to a fraudulent website that sells proxies. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, eh, if I'm ever going to commit account takeover, I might as well do it on this because, you know, they're bad guys anyway. Exactly. Um, but oh my gosh, it's so easy. Like, it's insane. And it's so easy. Like, it's user friendly. It doesn't look like, you know, you know, the typical, you know, sites that I've seen before. It's not like, you know, looking like DDoS or, or not DDoS, sorry, a DOS website is what I meant to say. Too many acronyms in my head. You know, it doesn't look old. It's so user friendly and intuitive. It's cheap. You can just pick the, you know, ISP you want to use, like Comcast, CenturyLink, all those, the city and state. And then they're super cheap. They're like 50 cents to a couple dollars. And they have a refund policy. They have customer service. They have everything. Like if it, and they also check to see if it's on multiple negative lists. And that we can go into another time. We have <laughs> learned that some of them have access to a few fraud detection sites that merchants use to be able to determine if they're on negative lists. Yeah, we won't be naming those, but those companies that we know of have been alerted when they're being, you know, when everyone on the dark web's talking about how easy it is to use them to check to see. Uh, IP. Right. You know, I have contacts there, so I have are at those places and have contacted them. And just to give you an idea of how easy ATO is, I, on the conference I gave uh, for ISMG last week, I did an, a live demo of an account takeover. And the account takeover, it involved uh, compromising a, a Gmail account and also compromising a uh, business that we had set up just for the purposes of the demonstration. So the, the, what, the only thing I needed to do was to spoof the geolocation of the victim. That was it. And what you need to what I, what I'm trying to say to you is is that as a company, depending on how your fraud services, your anti-fraud services are working, some companies the only thing it requires in order to take over an account, and it works the same way with credit unions, with small merchants, everything else like that. If you're if you have a proxy or an IP address that is within range with the same ISP, with the same geolocation, say within five miles of where that victim should be, a lot not a lot, but if you see a merchants credit unions, all these other things that will basically allow that person to log in. If they have the correct password, have the login, they figure that's the real person and they let them in. And that's exactly what I showed at the, at the ISMG conference. I used an IP address that was geolocated to the supposed victim. In this case, it was an FBI agent I was giving the, <laughs> giving the, give the presentation with, but I was able to sign in to his Gmail account without a hiccup. I was able to take over his business email account as well and go from there. And when you have something like that, when you're able to get in that easy, you can milk the account out of every single thing that you've got. And that's that's one of the other things you have to watch out for as a merchant or a retailer or financial institution or anything else. If you have two-factor authentication, you should not ever have that linked to the email. 
mm. because that's one of the first things that a criminal takes over is the email account. That's so well said. I mean, I think once they and once they take over the email account, they know what companies that consumer shops at because they can look at all the emails, all the marketing emails that they get, and then they go directly to those. If if it's you know a real person committing the account takeover, that's definitely right. part you, of it. You've, you've dealt with ATOs on the merchant side. I mean, a heck of a lot. I mean, I've dealt with ATOs too, except from the criminal side. Of the <laughs> you, you've dealt with them as, as far as just stopping fraud. Now, I've done that for the past, you know, basically two years. But what type of ATOs have you been seeing with merchants dealing with? And, and why do you think it's such a problem with online companies? Well, I mean, you definitely talked about why it's a problem. I mean, it's easy to do as well as they look so legitimate. I mean, that's the whole thing about being an online merchant. And those of you who are in fraud for CMP companies know this so much. You can't stop all the orders or else you have no customers. And you can't stop, you know, you're balancing that line all the time of not wanting to stop customers that are good because they look risky and there will always be good orders and good accounts that will look risky and there always will be risky accounts that look good and you know when fraudsters are trying to look legitimate and we're trying to just find the fraud it, it this makes it so much trickier than how it was before you know five years ago man i'd go back to fighting that fraud all day long over this <laughs> stuff i think everyone else would too you know what i would say is the other issue with account takeover for merchants is how much it impacts the consumer so we're talking a lot about like how is it used and how is it function and all that. But there's this whole other side of it from an operations standpoint of what do you do to that good consumer? Because you have a bad guy who's taken over a good consumer's account. Do you just blacklist that consumer account and no longer allow them to use your service? Do you, you know, but also now if, if they use the card on file, now their card is, you know, has been stolen on your site and they might have you synonymous with fraud and think that you're not secure. They may think that you were hacked, which that word gets, I'm using quotation marks, but I mean, that word gets used so much because, you know, we know the difference between hacking and, and fraud, but a lot of people don't and they better understand the word or they at least recognize the word hacking. And so they think, oh, my Facebook account got hacked or my Gmail got hacked or my Amazon got hacked. It's like, no, it didn't. It just got taken over. But right, anyway, right. you have to you have to figure out a process for how to deal with this. If you're dealing with account takeover for the customer, for the good consumer that's now been victimized, how are you going to put it all back together and make it okay for them? And that is honestly very specific to each company. And you know, the companies I work with, I always kind of better understand their business culture as well as just, you know, business decisions. And I'll always give them a few options. Like, do you want to be proactive, reactive? It's based on how many people they have, what their processes are, what their policies are, their customer service relationship with the fraud department. I mean, so many different things. So I don't ever want to give one blanket advice to everyone because it just doesn't work. But that is something you really have to think about is how you're going to repair it for the good customer, how you're going to notify them, how you're going to take care of them. If they notify you, what you're going to do, definitely having a close relationship with customer service so that when, if they call to say, you know, I got a confirmation email that I ordered something, but I didn't, that they have a good experience and then it gets forwarded to the right person so you guys can identify it right away. All those things are things that are important. And that's a huge reason why it's a problem. It's not just, oh, it's a card, we're going to cancel it. Or, 
you know, now you've got this third person involved that usually isn't when it's straight carding. As far as like the different types of account takeover and tactics I'm seeing, it really varies on the type of merchant it is. So I'm seeing different types of account takeover with large digital goods companies, like the bigger the brand, the bigger the problem in a lot of ways. I mean, the bigger the problem they have in a lot of ways. And that's when I see like if it's a bigger brand, especially for digital goods and on accounts, I see a lot of credential stuffing, a lot of brute force bots and things like that that are just continually running and just basically using so much data and so many things to see how many work. For smaller, like more boutique retailers, like physical goods and other things like that, definitely seeing more of like a personalized touch where the actual person is going in and like you had talked about, like probably buying a Foles and getting, I don't know if that was the right terminology with pluralizing, but I'm clearly not a fraudster, but a fools. I don't know if that makes sense, but it is. That's great. Just like I help you with my term with terminology on this side, you can help me with that side. <laughs> but you know, if they buy a fools and they really take time with that company, they are with that customer and they really invest in it. They call customer service. They socially engineer them to really make them think that that account is legitimate. Maybe the consumer moved or, oh, I'm sending this to my sister or whatever else it is. So I see those differences in just like how they're accessing the accounts kind of based on the size of the merchant, but also the ticket. So I personally see more of the credential stuffing and brute force on smaller ticket but more of like the personalized touch and more manual on the fraudster side for the higher ticket items. Right. Would that be, I mean, would that be consistent with what? Oh, absolutely. The thing is, is, uh, you know, I I talk about the same type of stuff during uh, my CMP presentations and everything, but if, if you're doing an ATO, it, you need to make it worth your while. So, so you can ATO countless accounts, but the, the services or the items they have are not very valuable. The resale on them is not very high. So it does, it's not worth a fraudster's time for him to do anything manually at that point. That's, that's why automation is making such, a, such an impression now and a big difference with fraudsters overall. Right. But if the item is more valuable, I mean, if it's, if it's something that he can... I've known people that uh, have ordered, they've set up a business account with one of these big electronics manufacturers and they've ordered 40 phones at a time and got Mm. those in. It's worth it to that guy at that point in time to do everything manually, to make sure everything goes through just fine. So it has to be worth it to the fraudster for him to, to actually do something that requires some manual input. Yeah, that makes sense from that perspective. I mean, I'm just kind of more talking about like what I see from the merchant side and all that. Oh, it's the exact same thing on that. I mean, I... What I've always said is that, you know, for a if a merchant makes money off a product or service, a fraudster will do the same off the same product and service. Right. It's just important for the merchant to understand where they stand in that fraud spectrum. And I right. think if they if they understand it, they can better know what they need to do to combat the type of fraud that they're going to be hit with. Right. That's exactly why we dedicated that first episode focused on merchants on that topic because I think that's super important. The other thing I would say is I see two different types of account takeover too, and we kind of referenced it a couple minutes ago, but sometimes they're using the card on file and sometimes they're not. And so what I always tell merchants when you're trying to figure out how to prevent it is to figure out exactly what's happening. How are they getting in? Are they doing it through credential stuffing, brute force? Are they doing it through, you know, manually? Where do you stand in the food chain is 
as Brett said, the dollar value of your accounts. What are they getting? What are they doing with it as far as you know? So kind of tracing that account, seeing what the behavior is. And then also, what are they doing once they're in the account as far as monetizing it? Are they monetizing it to use the card on file and or are they monetizing it by accessing it and using a different a completely different card but using the legacy of the account and how you prevent it really depends on those things a few really big merchants I get all excited when I see when I'm making a purchase as a consumer and I see changes that they've made and I know it's to prevent fraud so for instance if what you're seeing on your end is the stored cards being used then maybe whenever the address is changed or the you know also looking at what's what are they changing once they get in the account are they changing the address are they changing the phone number are they changing the email address what's changing. And so then having some kind of trigger mechanism, and it does take some internal engineering to do this, but it's really important, especially if this is really impacting your business as much as it is a lot of the companies I've worked with, is trigger some kind of verification. It could be two-factor auth. It could just be as simple as asking them to re-enter the CVV in their card, the last three digits on the back of the card. It could be as simple as asking them to re-enter something else, setting up a second password or whatever, or triggering 3D Secure, or triggering two-factor auth, or whatever it is. So looking at the behavior and what they're doing and finding out exactly what they're doing once they're in their account, how they're getting the account, that's how you can figure out how to prevent it. Brett, you have actually, you know, because you were on the other side, you have really good advice for merchants on, you know, how to prevent all different kinds of fraud. But what kinds of things would you think, you know, knowing the types of account takeover that you're seeing right now being talked about on the dark web and that's working for them, what would you think merchants should be doing to identify it and prevent it? Sure. And uh, I'm sure that some of my advice is going to be like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> so, oh, have, have I said that before? <laughs> I think you have. Because <laughs> I told you when I first met you, well, they should manually review every single thing. <laughs> and I was like, that's that's great if they have 5,000 exactly. employees or, you know, <laughs> and if it's a physical item and if they have the ability. And that, I mean, but honestly, like, that's okay because you haven't been in the operations right, side. Like, right. That's why we really balance each other out. <laughs> There's things that I could say about, like, oh, well, the fraudster's doing this. And you'd be like, no, not. no we can't so, <laughs> it balances it out. <laughs> uh, what, what I would say is, be aware that that's one of the things that continues to surprise me because it's been going on since since we were doing carding back in you know the the early two thousands is shipping to an alternate address. What on earth? I mean, and I understand that that during the Christmas season, October through the first week of January, that everyone ships to an alternate address, but that should really raise a flag. I mean, it really should. Uh, Carice is absolutely right on on CVV. I think CVV more than anything it stops friendly fraud and first party fraud. I can't well, even Well, CVV would stop. I mean, so what I'm saying is like if they're a using a file. card on file. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. if they don't know what the full card number is, it just shows the last three digits, they're Absolutely. certainly not going to know the CVV. Now, if they're using a fresh card, if you see them going and taking over accounts just for the legacy value of the account and you're seeing them use a fresh card, then they're 100% going to have the CVV of that new card, and that's going to do no good. And then you have a separate set of prevention mechanisms. So that was kind of, you know, no, I wanted to wrong. clarify you're that because I don't right. think I said that in the right way <laughs> the first time. But, uh, so, so CVV is, is absolutely on that. What else can I think of? <laughs> I, I had a whole list of things here, and I've kind of it's kind of left me. Who would have thought? 
so you, sh you should alter addresses, you should flag any type of change on the account. And, and what I mean by that is, say, say the guy or, or the person's account, they've been there for 10 years, and they've, for the 10 years, they've done nothing but order adult diapers. That's it. Twice a week, they wear adult diapers. What in the world are you? What's in your brain right now? I'm just saying, let's say that's what I mean, you could have said books. You could have said, have. you know, videos, movies, games. No. But let's, adult diapers. Okay, let's go with it. One item. And then one day, their, their account orders two MacBook Pros. That should be a flag, right? Same thing if, say, the account has never used gift cards before and one day you see a gift card put on it now it could be legitimate chances are it is legitimate but depending on the action that follows placing that gift card on there will tell you so a lot of a lot of fraudsters now is that they will buy a gift card for an account they'll add it on they'll ato an account they'll add a gift card onto it so what they're going to do is a gift card is a payment method or purchasing a gift card as, as so they'll, they'll buy a gift card and they'll add it on as a payment method is it a gift card to that like private label to that merchant or to is it a... I'll, I'll use where okay. it started. It started at Amazon. Of course. So Amazon was shutting down a lot of fraudsters that were doing refunding scams. So mm -hmm. what they did was is they started buying Amazon logins for $3 a piece. Then they would mm -hmm. buy an Amazon gift card, add it to that account, and then they would commit refund fraud on that existing account that was 10 years old. That did just do the adult diapers for 10 years. All right. That was actually one of the examples that was going on. So um, they will add the gift card on, then they'll order the expensive item and claim it didn't show up or claim the battery leaked or claimed it wasn't in the box hmm. or something like that. And what happens is, is Amazon or whatever the company is, they'll refund that back to the gift card. The fraudster then, what does he do? He sells the gift card on a secondary market hmm. and profits by that. So you have to watch things like that as well. Right. And I would say, I mean, the reason I said kind of, of course, under my breath was just because <laughs> the bit, not because not, I want to be really crystal clear. Like it's not because Amazon's a bad company or because they don't do, they actually have an exceptional fraud department. I know a few people in it and there's actually various ones and they're really good. But unfortunately, the bigger the brand, the bigger the target. And, you know, Amazon has so many, I mean, everything under the planet. And they also have, you know, so many customer focused services. I mean, literally, I'm getting something from them this afternoon that I ordered like at midnight last night. Um, <laughs> I'm lucky because I live in Seattle. We have same day. All I do anymore <laughs> is same day because I mean, two days is just way too long to wait now. Oh, two days um, is way too long. <laughs> Grace needed a new yoga mat and I couldn't wait till Tuesday. Um, <laughs> I had to have it now. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, because they're so customer-focused. But, I mean, you can replace that. I mean, honestly, all the big brands, they really are the first targets. But they also, they know that, and they're very, they're pretty quick at recognizing it and implementing services in place. So, I mean, I just want to be super clear that, like, just because they were maybe the first people to be victims of that fraud doesn't mean that they're easy to defraud. Doesn't mean that they don't have an exceptional fraud department. No, doesn't I mean, you're, mean that they're doing you're right. You're they're not doing right. everything they can twenty four seven, literally right. and internationally, and also that they really do set the bar with some of the things that they've put in place. And you know, I don't like to name company names, but in this case, I think it's okay because there's been a lot of public articles on the refund fraud issue that they've had, and they've you know commented on it as well as. You know, they're they're a good example that we can all learn from because 
I can guarantee you I will talk to one of the big, big guys like that company as well as some of the other ones you can think of, and they'll be experiencing something that nobody else is, and within six months and as soon as they figure out how to fix it, everyone else is experiencing it too. Absolutely. So that's, that's exactly really why we're using Amazon, that example. Amazon, uh, you're, you're right about Amazon security. The thing about Amazon is, and fraudsters have known it for years, I mean years, trying to, to place a fraudulent credit card order with Amazon is almost impossible. If you hear someone on one of these forums that brags they can do it, the typical response is, you're lying. You're not. Huh. Okay? The problem with Amazon was is that they also have outstanding customer service. Right. So the way fraudsters work is fraudsters or are, are, are cyber criminals specifically are all about looking how to get around systems. So mm -hmm. if you can't go in one door, you look at another door. Well, they couldn't get in the car, the fraudulent credit card door. So they then said, well, I wonder how their customer service department is. <laughs> so one guy, all of a sudden, he, he starts reading, well, I got a refund on a laptop that didn't show up. Huh. Well, I wonder what would happen if I tell them my laptop didn't show up. And it went from there. And then it, it became so popular, and I've, I think I've said that before, that it changed the dynamic of cybercrime. Now people mm. start with that friendly fraud, and they go from there. It just well, it's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a true testament to you because one of the very first blog articles you wrote on your personal website, Anglerfish Security, little plug, <laughs> was about, I think it was like Amazon refunding the meat and potatoes for fraudsters or something like that. I know I had meat and potatoes in there. And it was a year and a half ago and I was like, I haven't heard of this yet. And then now, just a couple weeks ago, an article came out about Amazon shutting down a ton of accounts because of this refund fraud. So, I mean, again, how do you figure out what the latest and newest thing is that's targeting your business? You hire a former cyber criminal that has access to not just the dark web, but the private dark web forums that only like the upper echelon can get into, in my opinion. Or you just become really good friends with them and start a podcast with them and then you learn a lot that way. Oh, too. See, now you're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's true. I mean, that's definitely... Something I've learned a lot from you over the year and, uh, you know, over the year and a half or so that we've known each well, other. I mean, it's mutual. I've learned a lot from you as well. I really have. <laughs> so, well, know, it's, uh, yeah, like and, and not not to, like not to advise people to manual review every order. Is that what you've learned? <laughs> I, I, that was one of the first things. <laughs> oh, you can't do that, huh? Well, that's a shame. <laughs> well, and actually, on that note, I was going to say that, like, as far as secondary addresses and things like that, I've done studies on it. And actually, there's a lot of people, especially in urban areas, that like to ship to their office because Absolutely. there are so many porch pirates. That, unfortunately, is a sign of a legitimate customer, too. Also, seeing... You know, having it shipped to their office as well as shipping to a friend or a family, you know, that is still something. It's not like a surefire way that if they change the address, but it is good, you know, if they change the default address and they change the email or I always like to look at the ands. So they change the card number and they change the phone number or they right. change this and that. But again, it all goes down to what what it looks like in your business, because if you're looking at those things and looking at your losses, so I'm huge on chargeback analytics. I mean, I named my company after chargeback analytics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm huge on that because you can learn so much about your losses as well as about your customers on it. And if you look at your chargebacks and your losses and you look at the things that look like account takeover, then you can narrow it down to what does 
does the account takeover look like in my business? And therefore, how can I prevent it? And so that's, you know, I'm just going to preach that like a million times over, but those are really good. You know, you provide really good ideas as far as you're looking at that and all that and knowing CBV's one. I would say if I, there's been a few times that I've had merchants contact me and they're like, we're getting hit by bots really, really hard. They're credential stuffing or they're doing brute force attacks. Like we don't know what to do. We don't know how to stop it. And I always say, if it's just an immediate need and you just need a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, like it's not going to be a long-term fix, but you can have your engineering department, and my understanding is it's fairly simple, move some of the buttons because the scripts for the bots are written very specifically to where on the screen those buttons are. And so if you have them moved from you know the lower right-hand corner to the middle, or sometimes you know some companies will kind of alternate them and change it around so not have it be static, that can at least break the bots for short term and then allow you to put a more long term process in place. And that also goes for carding with bots and everything else. Literally, like I said, it's not a long term fix, but it's something. Other things I suggest are obviously, you know, when we saw fraud shift, I mean, it doesn't mean that carding is non-existent, like Brett said, but I've definitely seen a shift in account takeover being the number one thing that merchants are asking me about versus, you know, clean credit card fraud and even friendly fraud. Sometimes it's asked about more when we're looking at that. A lot of the systems had to change. I mean, a lot of the fraud prevention technology had to change and some of the existing ones had to, you know, change the way they scored things and what they looked at as well as brand new companies have come up in the last couple of years that have, you know, responses to bots or responses to account takeover. You know, I've recently seen one company start to identify the type of fraud. Is it carding? Is it account takeover? Is it that in an automated basis as opposed to anecdotal? I also just worked with a really large company to help them do that as well based on some of the data and the behavior happening from an analytical and data perspective. They're really lucky to have a data scientist on their fraud team. That is really close to unheard of, except for some of the big guys, but she's really smart. And we, her and I were able to work together to, you know, I provided the behaviors and the processes and then she did the data stuff to really, you know, crunch that. <laughs> And that also helped, you know, we also set up an automated way to respond to chargebacks as well based on those things. So, you know, and to not respond to them when we can identify the behavior as account takeover or card testing. But anyway, like that's, you know, some of the things I think it's really important to know how your fraud service provider is fighting account takeover if they're doing a good job. Are they truly able to identify SOX5 proxies that Brett talked about? Brad and I have definitely come across companies that claim to do proxy piercing and don't actually do a fantastic job of it. <laughs> that's Pep Eva Brett's. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you use another term and another word, but we won't, you know, case you one's kids in the car. <laughs> but I mean, I think that really why it's a pet peeve is because it, it's frustrating when we feel like companies are giving merchants or consumers a false sense of security. Right. And I hear merchants all the time being like, oh, well, I, my, you know, pro my fraud tool uses proxy piercing, so I'm good. And I'm like, eh, actually, I'm not sure you are. Because at the end of the day, fraudsters are going to continually work around the system. Like 100%. They're always going to try to look legitimate. They're always going to work around the system. And you can never be complacent. And you have to make sure that your fraud provider isn't complacent either. And I just feel like it's dangerous when providers are 
guaranteeing things and well not guaranteeing things but promising things and saying they have services that they don't now that doesn't mean that they aren't good at other things that doesn't mean that they aren't good for some companies and that doesn't mean that there aren't really really good ones out there that are fighting this but it is important for you to find out what they're doing specifically for the type of fraud that you're seeing and how they're going to help you or if you need an extra layer or if you need to do an RFP for a whole other service I just don't get complacent with your tool don't get attached to the people just because you you like the people doesn't mean that they're going to help your bottom line all the time these are things obviously that I see and hear a lot and I am not attached to any one provider. I work really hard. I mean, I'm one of the few consultants that doesn't take referral fees for any company that I'm, you know, working with as a client because I want to be strictly I want to give them advice based on what they need and not because I'm going to get a check on the back end. And that's really important to me. I, you know, put principle over profit in that perspective, but it's because I want to make sure. So I just want to be sure that everyone knows I'm not saying that because I'm attached to one fraud provider <laughs> and that's why I'm, you know, dissing all the rest of them. I don't think there's one single fraud provider that works for every single company either. And so I always work, you know, to customize the strategy because it's not going to be the same for everyone. Some of them have higher false positives and others. Some of them are more expensive. Some of them are, you know, all these things. But I've definitely seen, you know, the one thing I would say that I've seen really, really stop some account takeover is behavior biometrics at the login, super effective, but at the same time, very expensive. It's helped a lot of the big companies to the point, I mean, the companies are so big that some of the fraud providers that provide services for them can't say that they're customers, but I know who their customers are because the merchants tell me. But I mean, anyway, like that's, I mean, that is something that will really help. But again, it's expensive. So you have to weigh out like how expensive is this issue to us? How is it worth putting behavior biometrics on every single login to make sure that we're, you know, protecting our people. And sometimes you can split the budget on some of those fraud services too with other parts of your business like marketing. And there's a lot of great data analytics that fraud providers provide that sometimes you can split the bill, so to speak, with other departments in your business. So I'll wrap it up from there. But that's, you know, some of the advice I give. But again, to me, it comes down to diagnosing your exact issue. What's the behavior? What are they doing with it? How are they getting in? And finding a process as well as a solution that fits that, but also knowing that once you address those issues, they're probably going to evolve and do even more. So just always looking at what's next and thinking like a fraudster. Like I, think that is, I, I think that is absolutely great advice. I would say the same thing, but then I would just be repeating you. <laughs> <laughs> so... For that, I think that's it for today's episode. Yeah, I think it was a doozy. I mean, and honestly, you guys, you guys probably know we could talk about ATOs for, I mean, like Brett said, like literally five hours and still have things to talk about. And we will. So, I mean, definitely let us know what, you know, what you wish we talked about today in addition to all this. And we'll try to make sure we work it into another episode for sure. There we go. So. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. I, I mean, I learn something every time I hear Carice speak. And she says the same about me, but I, I don't know if she's just bragging that or trying to impress me. But I really Oh, no, it's genuine. So, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, we have so many more topics to cover to help you protect your businesses from fraud. So please, please subscribe to Online Fraudcast to be alerted when a new episode is out. And because we're new, please tell your friends, rate and review us where you can to help others learn about these topics too. And honestly, to add on that, like everyone who has reached out to us and who has shared our statuses on 
you know, social media and everything else. Seriously, thank you. I mean, it's great validation for us as we get started in this new venture. And, you know, to add on that, we, we really want to hear what you love so far about the podcast. We want to keep hearing about it. And we also want to know how we can improve and what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find Online Frogcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn. Or if you want to email, you can email us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.